This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Carly Dober and we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, upon whose land we are broadcasting here at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. On the Climate Action Show, we talk about what's hot and what's not with climate change. Please share the show if you like what you hear, and remember there can be no climate justice without First Nations justice. Hello everyone and welcome to the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you live from the studios of 3CR Melbourne and we're hosted and syndicated all around Australia and on the podcast. Please make sure to share the show if you like what you hear. Today my guest is Nadia, an activist and campaigner from Blockade IMARC in Nam, Melbourne. Nadia, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. How have you been and how are you going planning and organising for this year's Blockade IMARC? It has been a whirlwind, um, just in case people who are listening aren't aware. So Blockade IMARC, the International Mining and Resource Conference, which is the largest yearly mining gathering on this continent of so-called Australia, um, it has been postponed since its online event in 2020 due to the pandemic. It's been postponed twice. It was supposed to happen this time last year. Then it was supposed to happen in January in Melbourne. And in the last two months, they've decided to shift and upgrade the conference to a bigger venue in Sydney. So as an organiser with Blockade Armark, all I can say that, yeah, we're trying to adapt and go for the flow and, and still keep up the resistance to the conference. What do you think was the push to um, for the IMARC organisers to really go large? Oh, good question. Um, there's quite a few different angles that people are noting. I think one of them is there's the Victorian elections around November and considering the, um, the protests in 2019 against IMARC, that wouldn't have been good PR for the Victorian government. Um, I think also the International Convention Centre is a bigger venue and I think IMARC just is upgrading, so that probably would have been some sort of business deal behind the scenes that they really want to emphasise conference. And I think it is just developing. IMARC is now spinning itself as the conference with all the solutions to the climate um, crisis that we are in because they're really doing the greenwashing spin against all the um, yeah, all, all the attendees of the conference. So I think they're just really sort of trying to invest a lot to make mm. sure they can make the money. Mm. So I'm Mark, what, for those maybe who don't, aren't too familiar with the conference in itself, who are the players and what are they doing? And tell us about the greenwash if you, if you can. Yeah, I would love to, because um, this is basically the reason why I decided to join the um, Blockhead IMARC Alliance. Um, using IMARC's own um, like PR, like it is the largest mining gathering on this continent. It brings together 800 plus um, mining executives um, and key players in the industry. So this includes people that work in other sectors and the scientists that are leading some of the research into mining sort of developments. Um, companies such as BHP, Rio Tinto, in the past, Adani was there, there's um, Oceana Gold, all these key mining companies that are pushing towards the extractivism in the world to mine lithium mining and copper mining um, and pushing that sort of post-fossil fuel mining boom. There, um, so IMAC basically is the networking event for all these companies like Rio Tinto, BHP to meet to make their deals. Um, and they fly in all over the world. So it's, it's, it's a major buzz for the mining industry. Mm. And 
I mean, do you know what they're expecting the police intervention or the security intervention to be? Or what do you anticipate for the counter-conference? Um, well, actually, the counter-conference will be here in Melbourne. So I'd really love to just chat to that um, or your mm. lovely vis- visitors today. Because the, um, the actual IMAC conference has shifted to Sydney, um, at the moment, it's just still really difficult to know how things will play out, what will happen. But I just want to emphasise that whatever happens this year in terms of protesting the conference, IMARC happens every year. So it will be on again, most likely in Sydney, at the same time next year. So um, however the police respond this year, it might be a small event, so I can't comment on that. Um, obviously, the protest laws that are passed in New South Wales are something to sort of really consider and dig deep into. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're running a counter conference here in Melbourne, which emphasizes the education side of the Block at IMAC campaign. So not only do we want to disrupt IMAC conference itself, but we also want to just educate ourselves and the wider climate movement and other activists that organize their campaigns about the need to focus on extractivism as a whole, as opposed mm-hmm. to just um, focusing on climate change and fossil fuels, because there's a whole mining industry extravaganza that's just going to like envelope and open up the world for more destruction to life and damage to life and it won't solve the climate crisis but that's sort of where we are headed so we have a counter conference on october the 21st and october 22nd here in uh, melbourne and you can like look it up by going on facebook and searching life or death resisting extractivism and that's the name of the conference thank you so much what is what what can people expect from the counter conference People can expect um, amazing grassroots um, resistance um, stories and voices from all around the world and including this continent, um, talking about their continued resistance against extractivism, against mining, against all these big companies like BHD, Rio Tinto, Oceana Gold, who all attend IMAR, about what they're doing to their land and to their communities. And it's going to share sort of the personal um, human side of, of extractivism and mining and why we can't settle for renewables saving our climate crisis um, but also be a lot of like beyond extractivist thinking you know not just the doom and gloom of everything which is important to sit with but also inviting like well what does that mean how do we how do we live how do we connect um, what does the future look like if we go beyond extractivism mm. what inspires you about this and what keeps you able to continuously give to this monster of I don't know of just like a climate wrecking bloody project conference (laughs) (laughs) I mean number one (laughs) yeah definitely oh gosh yeah I do it's kind of good to look at like a big goblin that's just like swallowing up everything (laughs) yes stinky farts um it's just, it is the balance of, of life or death. Like we're using a really bold title for the counter conference. Um, and it really is just that balance of that joyful life and how we need to fight for it and really demand that like here and now. And also we do need to sit with like the pain because we are, you know, I think all of us have gone through the pandemic. There's the floods, there was the, the fires um, and now the floods in Pakistan. And it's just really, um, humbling and grounding I think for me personally I find learning about extractivism which is a term that comes from Latin American like indigenous resistance against mining they they termed extractivism as sort of this total um sort of mining beast um Mm -hmm. for me personally learning about that it was a real landing point in terms of seeing the necessity and the reality of needing to connect all those things together for actual like system change so it's actually like it's talking about land rights and land back and also community and also what does the world look like if we're not perpetually developing for the sake of profit it's it's, it's just mm-hmm. the very human side the humanity of it um, really ties me down and makes me sort of stick around even when things are a little tough like they are right now beautiful that joy and connection that radical hope yes. it's so potent when you find yeah it's so potent when you find it Okay. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, and also, like, I mean, I grew up in Melbourne, so my life has been cushy as anything. And then there are, <laughs> there are people who are involved in the Lockheed Armac Alliance. There are other people that support it from afar. 
and they say that this is important. This is important for us to like make um, extractivism as a term, as, as a concept, as a campaign, and anti-extractivism, making that more mainstream and normalised in our day-to-day conversations, in our climate movement campaigns. And IMARC is just basically like the tangible infrastructure of extractivism. Yeah. Mm. How can people living in, you know, so-called Australia get involved if they're curious about the blockade IMARC from wherever they might be living? And what are their options? Yeah, great question. Um, like for me personally, I definitely want to acknowledge just how tough it has been coming out of the pandemic and trying to get back into the years of organising. And I'm sure a lot of people could resonate with that. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think for me, I just say like, go steady, go slow. There are always people that will hold the space in terms of protesting IMAR. So even if it's something that you want to tap into 2023, um, just reach out to us at community at blockateimark.com. Otherwise, keep an eye on Facebook because anytime we do do an event, just send us a message, send us a line, um, especially if you are someone who's in a different, um, like a climate activist group. It's definitely something that like people can come into on their own terms, their own capacity and sort of join the Blockading IMARC. Like Blockading IMARC isn't an organisation in itself. It's a network of, mm-hmm. of different activists that want to speak to extractivism. Um, but otherwise, please come to the conference in Melbourne, October 21st, October 22nd, Life or Death Resisting Extractivism. That would be a great place just to connect and meet people. That's a huge emphasis of it. There will be food and drinks provided. And also, if people have capacity, but it's it's low going, but if you can be available from November 2nd to November 4th this year, that is when the International Mining and Resource Conference will be in Sydney. And there might be an open invitation for people to come up to Sydney and just, again, just connect um, and go from there. So just come in for conversations about extractivism. That's the biggest thing I think people What would you like this year's conference to look like? The IMAR conference? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like it not to happen. Yeah. Um, I'd like the roads to get blocked somehow. Mm. they can't even just bring in all their mining equipment and toys they showcase like it's so <laughs> silly. oh I hope, that is yeah i hope all the people they go to will have a message for crisis when they wake up in the morning and they realize they should do something else with their lives mm-hmm. uh, to be honest i just want to emphasize reconnecting i want to re i want iomark to be a place where activists climate activists and other groups can come together perhaps mm. in Sydney, and just meet each other and start having these deeper conversations about a post-extractivist world and how can we go and move towards that together. Um, mm. Really just reconnecting. Hopefully it sparks us to reconnect even during the dark time. That's purely my, my desire for it at the moment. That's lovely and so exciting. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on that I haven't asked? Um. Uh, yeah, I just want to maybe just quickly emphasise the fact that I think anything that I'm saying now would be a slightly sort of diluted version of sort of the calls from like Global South sort of movements and peoples about what we can be doing in places like here in so-called Australia and like in the Global North in terms of not settling for like the greenwashing spin that we mentioned earlier in, in terms of green mining and um, solar panels will save the day. It really won't. And it's a whole world out there to start looking into the reality of what copper mining, lithium mining, um, all that stuff's going to do to the land, the water and the life that we depend on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to maybe yeah, leave on a bit of a heavy note and just being like, it, it comes from voices that are already bearing the front of the climate crisis, climate crisis. And we have a lot to catch up on in terms of what we can expect from our climate solutions here. I'm thankful you brought that up and I'm, you know, thankful and also devastated you brought up the recent floods in Pakistan. It almost seems so morbid to think that um, opening whilst a conference that mm-hmm. will lead to more of those horrific experiences occurring. It's just so, so disjointed. Definitely. And I think we all spent a moment just to like contemplate that for a day. It's it's a lot to sit with and we can only do that if we do it together. Otherwise it's a lot to bear on one person, you know, individually. You can't. Yeah. 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 
Thank you so much, Nadia. Once again, we've been speaking to Nadia, climate activist campaigner from Blockade Armour, living in organising in Nam, Melbourne. Make sure to check in to the conference, reach out if you'd like to get involved or just check it out. I will put the show, I will put the resources in the show notes. Have a lovely night. Thank you so much for this beautiful short chat. I really appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. We're just going to have a bit of a break and listen to some community messages. The mental health system in Victoria is currently undergoing transformational reform. And for the first time, these reforms centre people with lived experience of mental health challenges in the design and delivery of the new system. So how do we then ensure that lived experience engagement is genuine and not tokenistic? And what are some of the structural changes that need to occur to encourage people with a lived experience to want to participate? These are some of the questions we will be exploring in this year's Wellways Public Lecture on Thursday, May 26 at the Wheeler Centre. The keynote speaker is Debbie Hamilton, a systemic mental health advocate. And the evening will also include a panel discussion with lived experience and governance experts and the launch of Vimeac's Consumers Leading in Governance pilot program. This is a free event, but bookings are essential. To book your ticket to the in-person event or online stream, visit lecture.wellways.org and follow the links to the booking page. That's lecture.wellways.org. Wellways supports 3CR.
Our next guest is Sean Tompkins, living and working in NAR, Melbourne, and we're talking to Sean about sustainability for his work at Hip V Hype. How are you going today, Sean? Pretty good, yourself? Always good. Good. Now, firstly, can you please tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, I'm Sean. Um, I'm a sustainability consultant at a company called Hip V Hype. Um, I grew up yeah, in the Northern Rivers, so in a little town called Crabs Creek. Um, I've been in Melbourne now for, um, God, like 13, 14 years. Um, I did my undergrad here, um, realised I couldn't really get a job, uh, you know, with that, or I wasn't in the headspace to get a job with that. So then I did some travelling overseas. I lived overseas for a couple of years, and then I came back, and I've done like another eight, eight or so um what years like now yeah cool so hip v hive tell listeners about who they are and what they do um yeah kind of like a three-pronged kind of like company i guess there's um like a projects team which kind of like project managers like the development of um carbon neutral apartments at the moment so we've just completed um for us in york which is 22 carbon neutral apartments um, across the river south side um, overlooking South Melbourne market then there's the team that I work in which is the better cities and regions team so we provide advice um, I guess from like the building scale up to precincts and subdivisions and like regions um, and a bit of random stuff in between like we'll do a climate action plan or like a waste um, like a circular economy thing so we're kind of like um anywhere in the middle there and then we have a buildings team who specifically are a bit more engineer focused and they'll do like daylight modeling energy modeling um and a few of those other things and i guess the beauty is we often kind of we all collaborate and get to work together um which is kind of what the philosophy and the idea is originally um our office in brunswick which is right near barclay square um is like a co-working spaces as well so we've got probably HVH staff probably make up a third of the like of the desks, and then the other two thirds um, um, like-minded consultants. We've got landscape architects in here. We've, um, we've got architects, um, and then a, a few other people come and go. Cool. You mentioned carbon neutral apartments, which is really really exciting. How? I mean, can you speak to how? The carbon neutrality is achieved uh yeah so um i guess the i guess everyone's kind of the mainstream's coming to or is already kind of understanding operational carbon so that's already kind of taken care of with the apartments um they're all electric so no new um you know natural gas supply into the building um, they've got like max out solar on the roof um, and then they're energy efficient themselves, um, I think. Um, so that kind of tackles the operational side. But then in terms of the Farrah's in York development, um, this is a part of the collaboration. So I was, um, our team provided like an LCA for the projects team. So did a life cycle assessment of the building itself. Um, so pretty much just going through um, the bill of quantities with the builder um, and kind of itemizing everything. We have a program that we use called eTool LCD. And so then we build essentially like a spreadsheet version of the building in, in this like program. And it has um, kind of assumed, but like peer reviewed um, carbon um like associated with each of the products. And so that'll be from all the life cycle stages from like the extraction of the material, uh, producing the, um, you know, like producing the material, the transport in between getting it to site. Um, so it's like pretty, it was actually, uh, it's an undertaking, it's pretty yeah. complex, you know what I mean? Um, but it was good. It was really, it was a really good process for us as a company as well, just to kind of like see where, I mean, it can even inform in the future the way that we procure like builders and what we write into contracts that are getting a level of like detail and information um, 
you know, about, about the products that we use. Um, and then essentially we get a, like, um, after we create the model, it's not just, yeah, I've, I've made the model. It then goes back to eTool and they get a third party certifier that goes through. And then it's like a, a, a game of tag, like, you know, between me and the certifier for a couple of weeks, just trying to iron out anything that I've incorrectly entered or like, haven't been clear on what the, like, you know, the product is, or, um, if I've edited a template, you know, um, you know, for example, the template in eTool might say that the products come from overseas, but I've been told, or I know that, you know, we've actually procured um, a local version of that product. So then you would edit, you would change the template and, you know, change the transport and it would reduce the, so like it goes down to that kind of like, you know, that level of a detail. Um, and then after it gets like certified, you go, um, this is the amount of embodied carbon that's in that structure. Um, and then you purchase offsets, you know, to, to like make the building carbon neutral. So there's obviously grades of offsets. Um, I'm not exactly sure across um, the ones that, that we purchased for the building, but I think it was a split, a split, um, you know, between a few different, a few different types. Um, and like an LTA also informs, you know, the design as well. So if you do it right at the beginning, then you get an opportunity to kind of inform the design and say, hey, maybe we replace X with Y and we can get it down. So again, that'll, like that work will feed into uh, the projects that we have coming up. And hopefully we just get closer and closer to to zero before we even have to offset, you know, is the goal. That's so exciting. I actually get so pumped hearing this kind of stuff, thinking about how homes can be built and that just be the standard. So um, is the long-term strategy, if you can talk to this, for hippie hype being carbon negative or just – can you speak to that? Um, well, maybe not in complete detail, but I think, yeah, the goal is – going forward all of our projects will be carbon neutral um i'd assume and then um it's just about trying to refine the design and the way that we construct them to to bring that lower and lower so part of that's like changing the design of the building itself the other part i think is the industry is going to start um like the materials themselves are going to come onto the market and be carbon neutral because they will have had a life cycle like done prior and there'll be what they call um, EPDs or environmental product declarations, which they already have, and they're starting to, you know, become more prevalent. I think climate active, there'll be all kinds of certifications that will come to the forefront and you will just purchase like products that are already carbon neutral. And so you don't, essentially, you don't have to like double count those, you know, like neutralities. It's exciting. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask, what got you into this line of work or how did you come into sustainability? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> I guess I can go back. I can go back pretty far. I guess I grew up in the country and just being a country kid and then kind of coming to Melbourne, I was like, well, the city, you know, like obviously it was uh, a spectacle coming to the city, really interesting. <laughs> um and it's it took me a few years it didn't really it didn't really hit until I went traveling and spent a lot of time in London um then I went to I lived in uh, Berlin for two years like every other Australian seems to you know spend the two years abroad there um and, and just kind of traveling around and going okay like like people live a different way. They organize themselves in a different way. I started becoming interested in like why Australia was organized, like are like cities and urban, urban populations while they're kind of organized like that. Um, so when I came back, um, I kind of wanted to do urban design. And then, and then like when I looked at the requirements, it was like, oh, you had to do an undergrad in like design or architecture or something. And I was like, okay, well, I didn't do that. My undergrad was in... Um, commerce it was like international business and management so I was like oh maybe I'll do town planning so I enrolled at like a master's um, at RMIT um, urban planning and environment and so did that for two years and then kind of as I, I guess in parallel to that I'd also started questioning like what I was eating as well and so like I'd become vegetarian and then I had friends that were vegan and then so I just could feel this whole like radical change 
in the way it was like thinking about how humans organize themselves. Um, and so it all kind of came like in a wave at the same time. Um, and then actually during my degree, I'd learned about um, like the Nightingale housing model. And at the time, um, at the time, Hippie Height was about to build Nightingale 2 in Fairfield. So that's how I found out about Hippie Height. And then the end of my degree, um, I needed to do a placement subject. And so I cold emailed a bunch of people and Hippie Height was one of them and just said, hey, I'm an intern and I do this thing for RMIT's, you know, it's just like hoping I'd get a credit at the same time. Um, and I was like fortunate enough, uh, you know, they gave me a call. So I met them and started as an intern and then it's just been um, a journey since then. Cool. What are, you mentioned the Nightingale, the Nightingale housing model. Nightingale. What is that? Oh, it's, it's just... Um, uh, I probably can't talk about it in heaps of detail, but just like a different mm. a different way of like developing apartments. And so they're little, mm. they're like pretty big now, but um, they're you know more energy efficient. Um, they kind of usually like don't have a car park, so there's like savings there. Um, yeah, and now I think there's one in Adelaide. There's a whole bunch. It's all the ones that are up near um, like A1 Bakery at the back in Brunswick if any if any Melbourne listeners uh you know obviously know that area it's it's pretty built up at the moment you, you're at uni you don't really like know exactly what you're going to do yet and then you see and then you hear about you hear about these projects and these new models and it kind of gets you excited so that was one of the like early like early ones mm. do you want to speak to I guess how efficient or inefficient you think some of the cities in Australia currently are and how you might design them if you could wave a magic wand um if i was going to put if i was going to put my hat on and my magic you know like wand i guess um i'd it's like the densities i guess the typologies that we used to i mean australia's got their dream of owning owning the 600 square meter lot with a huge house on it um and even today i kind of walk around at like some places in carlton and even kind of like south end of Brunswick, you see these houses um, and like, you know, right behind them, you see this like massive skyline in the back. But when you go over to Europe and stuff, everywhere's just like five story walk-ups, you know, um, there's the open, open green spaces where people can actually, where they're actually out there and enjoying, you know, like the amenity of the city. Um, and obviously investment in public transport's another big one. So Australia, like America, we've kind of orientated ourselves around the vehicle. Um, and, you know, you kind of see that with the crisscrossing of all the highways, art- arterial roads. Um, so I'd probably, you know, want to see more more density, not not skyscrapers though. Like that's that's the complete like wrong way. I think there's like, what they call the missing middle which is um you know kind of that sweet spot of like four to you know maybe six or seven stories and um just more of that more uh like public transport would be you know would be nice i did say a thing the other day about you know the bus um i think there was a study that's come out recently about re re rerouting the bus network in Melbourne which was interesting because at the moment it's like a spaghetti it's like someone threw spaghetti on Melbourne yeah it's crazy yeah and then you got to wait like 45 minutes you know to get a bus so they were talking about just moving all the buses to the main roads um so you'd have to walk further to get a bus but it would come every 10 minutes um and I don't know if that's the answer, but that's the kind of like thinking and the kind of questioning that we need with a lot of the services, you know, that we have in the city. Mm. How are you adopting some sustainability practices in your own home? Um, in my, well, in my life, I guess, um, you know, like I said, the diet thing is a pretty big one. And I think it's a area that a lot of people kind of overlook. Um, I think, you know, the production of, like animal products is like 13 or like 16% of global emissions. So it's like, you know, it's not, it's not insignificant. 
Um, and then, I mean, I try when I can to like reduce like the packaging um, of the foods that I consume, you know, go to bulk foods and like try to buy things there. Um, I have recently come back to Melbourne. I had to spend like a few months up north, but like prior to that, I was riding my bicycle almost everywhere. Um, so riding a bike as much as I can, only really hiring a car if I need to like, you know, pick something up. Um, and the energy efficiency that you're trying to implement in an apartment that I'm aware oh. of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have a mutual friend and I asked Sean to be on um, the show because of a project he's currently working on, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I bought an apartment. Um, and Congrats. I, it's just, yeah, thank you. Um, and so it's a really old brick walk up in Brunswick um, and it's, great it's um north facing on the top story um like third level um but the problem is it's going to be an absolute hot box in summer so just trying to think now and probably over the next few months like what's the best way um to kind of retrofit some sustainability into the building so it hasn't got any external external shading so that's probably on the cards um a few other things like it's just a red brick building um so i'm considering whether to paint it obviously this has to go through there's no like formal owners court but i'm gonna i don't you know i don't want to get anyone on the wrong foot so i'm gonna have to take everyone on this journey with me and like try and like educate them but like painting the building in a lighter color like a white mm. high solar reflective kind of color to like throw some of that heat away from the building as opposed to absorbing it um and then more vegetation around the building itself. So, um, you know, whether that's a, a vine that can kind of creep up the um, up the side of the brick or I like get a dyno bolt and kind of get like on, on the outside wall and run a cable up. Um, that's probably like what, like the vegetation is what I want. I think it's the best outcome because it's it'll have urban cooling benefits. Um, it'll have an you know ecological benefit it'll have an amenity benefit it'll make the building look like more appealing to the street um but obviously that would take time to grow um and so that's kind of on the outside of the building um on the inside you know starting to look at um maybe double glazing like like getting some double glazed windows in there um and whether we can put um like an in uh, extra layer of insulation on the inside of the building for the north and the west you know facade in particular um so there's like products that essentially have like a rigid board of insulation with like a 13 mil like plaster stuck together and then you can just glue that to your existing like wall so it just adds you know you lose like five or ten mil inside your apartment but you'd get an extra an extra like let you know would like bump the insulation up a little bit so there's there's no magic wand to like to do any of this um so we're just gonna have to um see what the best ones are and i say we because i keep on talking to everyone at like work about it so i'm getting like the building team like you know trying to get them involved um i had one of the guys over the other night we had like a thermal camera and we were taking like photos of the walls and the windows and it's like i mean it hasn't been too it hasn't been too cold or hot. It's actually been pretty nice, you know, like the last couple of nights. And the apartment's really nice, like temperature-wise, <clears throat> but it was already after dark. It was like probably seven o'clock and the outside temperature might've been like 11, 11 degrees or 12 degrees. And the inside wall was still 21 degrees Oh, from the yeah. afternoon sun so on the western side and so at like you know this time of year it's it's good because it's what you want in terms of the thermal mass it heats up over the day and then it like radiates that heat back into your apartment which is nice um but in summer on like a 40 degree day so get out probably, yeah yeah exactly um i i won't have to go to the sauna anymore because i'll just be <laughs> sweating my life away inside my apartment you could just double as like a Bikram yoga studio. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it'll be it'll be it'll be good, um, a good summer ahead to kind of maybe not do 
any of these things just yet and see how bad it gets to get kind of like a baseline. Um, and then kind of over the next six to 12 months, you know, kind of implement these things. I was really worried about the external shade thing, like the external things to a building, usually in a strata building are kind of like, it can be real tricky if there's rules, but it just seems really um, lucky and unlucky that there's no real organized strata at the moment. So I, eat, I emailed like one of them, the owners the other day, and I was like, so when it comes to renovations, I can do what I want. I can put external shade up and stuff. And she's like, yep, that's fine. I'm like, okay. Great. You've asked a question. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to say that I haven't asked? Um, well, if people want to like follow my journey, like with the apartment, I have an Instagram for it. So it's 380 underscore underscore Albert. And like, hopefully I'm trying to make it like a, like a tangible, informative, like, like, like way to explain like some of these things are interesting to people who are already in, in this world. And, um, and then it could be interesting to people who don't really, who are in the same position where they have an apartment that they want to retrofit, um, but they don't really like know, you know, like where to begin or like any, like, I just feel like industries like fill with acronyms and like lots of jargon. So just trying to like break that down a little bit. Um, but yeah, so it'd be good. Pop your Instagram in the show notes because I also agree. I think a lot of people are keen to do a lot of this stuff but maybe don't know where to start or how to do it. So that's really, really mm. cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Sean. Um, no everyone, that was Sean Tompkins living and working in NAM at Hip V Height. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. We're just going to have a bit of a break and listen to some community messages. you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au. We love a good book.
We're just going to have a bit of a break and listen to some community messages. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. An exciting update recently from the 8th of September 2022. New South Wales becomes the first state to treat carbon dioxide as a pollutant to ensure industries cut emissions. The Environment Protection Authority's climate policy plans to reclassify greenhouse gas and to offer incentives to transition from fossil fuels. This will eventually require polluters to develop plans to cut emissions. There was an eight-week consultation period launched for the draft climate change policy and related action plan. It marked the first step to require that polluters are on a trajectory towards net zero emissions by 2050. The big issue here is that an Australian government is moving to, albeit slowly, comprehensively cover carbon dioxide and equivalent emissions as a pollutant. This plan would give regulatory teeth to its net zero commitment to ensure that the whole economy moves on that path efficiently and effectively. The EPA's approach was modelled in part on the US EPA's regulation of greenhouse gases, with fines and criminal sentences amongst the penalties. It was designed to complement the Albanese government's safeguard mechanism that will set a cap on carbon pollution on 215 large industrial facilities responsible for about 
28% of national emissions. New South Wales' approach was triggered by a case brought before the state's Land and Environment Court in 2021 by the Bushfire Survivors of Climate Action. I interviewed them last year if you'd be interested in hearing from the President, Joe Dodds. Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action argued that the EPA had a duty under the Protection of the Environment Administration Act 1991 to develop objectives, guidelines and policies to ensure environmental protection from climate change, and they won. The state's Environment Minister at the time, Matt Keane, ordered the EPA not to appeal the, man the mandamus order that an agency perform mandatory duties correctly. The EPA's approach could also prove a template for other states. The state's 50% emissions reduction goal by 2030 was an important step on the route to mid-century carbon neutrality. A carrot in this policy would be the huge opportunities offered by the transition from fossil fuels, such as new forms of farming or lower cost energy. New South Wales could have a new wave of prosperity and another sort of boom that the sun and wind can provide. The impacts of global heating, whether in the form of worsening bushfires, floods or extreme weather, means business and the community are already paying a high price for the emissions intensity that is not currently being monitored. And there's a real financial cost that businesses, individuals and communities are paying in terms of access to insurance, access to capital markets and access to export opportunities as our trading partners around the globe transition very quickly to requiring low carbon products. The EPA planned eight weeks of consultation. Findings are due to be considered before a policy is formalised before Christmas in December this year, 2022. The agency would then begin detailed engagements with each sector of the economy on how they would cut emissions and demonstrate that they are preparing for future climate impacts. The approach was very much informed by the lived experience of disaster hit regions. People within the EPA visited Lismore in the state's north to examine repairs for the region's sewage works. As the climate is continuing to warm and to warm incredibly quickly, there have been calls for this same mechanism to be employed by the Victorian EPA. In response to the New South Wales Environment Protection Authority's draft climate change policy and action plan that reclassifies carbon dioxide as a pollutant for the first time, Environment Victoria CEO Jonna Lernau said, following a similar move from the US EPA recognising greenhouse gases as pollutants and imposing fines and criminal sentences on companies ignoring carbon caps, the New South Wales EPA has become the first state in Australia to follow suit. Environment Victoria has a landmark legal action underway against the Victorian EPA and three energy companies, AGL, Energy Australia and Alinta Energy. Many Victorians would be surprised to know that there is no legal limit on greenhouse gas pollution in Victoria. Our EPA has been asleep at the wheel on this issue. The New South Wales EPA is recognising the impact of climate damage on communities by recognising carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases as pollutants. The Victorian EPA should now update its own climate policies as a vital step towards giving it the regulatory teeth to help the Victorian government deliver on its carbon reduction targets. In Victoria's Latrobe Valley, there have been human consequences over many years resulting from pollution from the ageing power stations impacting on human health and wellbeing. The Victorian EPA must now follow New South Wales' lead and legally recognise the negative climate and human consequences of carbon pollution. The Supreme Court case will be the first test of Victoria's key climate legislation, the Climate Change Act 2017. It will also be the first to challenge the regulation of air pollution for Victoria's coal-burning power stations. We believe the Victorian EPA has failed to protect the health of the community and the environment, so the matter is being put before a judge. Environment Victoria's Supreme Court case will be heard over three days, the 18th and the 20th, the 18th, the 19th and the 20th of October 2022. Please ensure to follow and support this court case, make some noise about it and make sure that we are able to get the right laws that shape our present and our future, the health of our communities, ourselves and our planet.
This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.